since 2006, there's been harsh austerities, there's been a, a crisis of, of the former liberal hegemony. And what happened in 2010, if you like, at the peak of, of, of the global crisis, which hit Hungary extremely bad. So that's where or the, 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 this new illiberal system could come in and overtake uh, the collapse or the decline of this former hegemony and start to build up its own project. I mean, it's, it, it shows that you're serious, doesn't it? I mean, you're, you're there to take care of business. Yeah, I mean, you can try. It's fine to try to rebuild the welfare state as long as you annihilate 100 million Russians and turn them into vapor. Then, then, then it's fine. You rebuild the welfare state and you start it back from Hi everyone, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? This past Sunday, the 8th of April, Hungary went to the polls. The right-wing nationalist Fidesz retained its two-thirds majority, while the next party, Jobbik, a far-right nationalist party, won 20%. Liberal, Green and centre-left parties took only 25% combined. So it seems Hungary's divided between the authoritarian nationalist right and the far-right. International observers commented on the election, noting intimidating and xenophobic rhetoric, media bias and opaque campaign financing. The EU's Guy Verhofstadt called out Orbán's disrespect for the rule of law and attempt to introduce authoritarianism, while on the other side Marine Le Pen celebrated the victory. But behind this rhetoric, what's actually going on? What is Fidesz and what led to its rise? Does it actually present a challenge to so-called European values? And what are the prospects for a left which is nowhere to be seen? Hungary isn't just a peculiarity, but might actually tell us something about where Europe is heading. All this and more, right now. All right. Uh, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. I'm Alex Hochuli. I'm here in Sao Paulo with Ben Fogel. How's it? And we've got George in George Hoare in London. Hi. Emphasis, yeah, on the on the Hoare for some reason. Apologies. Um, <laughs> it's, it's your actual name. All right. So before we get started, we've got Tamash Geroch uh, coming on the line very shortly to talk about Hungary in light of yesterday's election. But also, we're going to go much deeper uh, into Hungarian political economy. If that doesn't sound sexy, I mean, I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, but first of all, um, what's up, George? What, what what's been going on in the UK? Anything interesting? Any news? Yeah. Well, it's very it's very grey here as it as it always is um and another thing that always seems to be happening is we have another centrist party that Yay! Up like, a, like a like another mushroom this one uh, it's got 50 million pounds from the founder of love film to uh, break up the break the westminster mold and if people don't know what love film is it, it they it's not a days before streaming it it would send you dvds in the post and then you'd send them send them back so yeah basically this um seems like a big waste of time Adonis is against it, um, so yeah, that's that's what I've been thinking about. So another today. another party to represent the the one percentrists. <laughs> yes, that was a good a good tweet. I wish I I, I wish I could say tweet. that I had coined that, but um, the, the the reference to to where that came from is is on our Twitter. There was a there was a tweet when the last centrist party uh, popped up for a very short period of time with Jeremy Cliff, which was uh, something along the lines of, and I couldn't find it. Um, I, I found myself politically homeless, but then after no, donating all my money to Kickstarters for new centrist parties, I'm now literally homeless. So, <laughs> <I think>. And <laughs> but, that and that uh, was a party which lasted 24 hours. I mean, we discussed this, I think, in the Italy podcast as well. Um, it's a good one. Yeah. yeah. 
So what about um, what about what about uh, you guys? Presumably, you've been thinking about what's going on in Brazil. I mean, oh, that's what a fuck's big one. Going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess we, I guess we we owe listeners a little update after the last episode we did, which was on Brazil, because since then a lot uh, of things have happened. A lot of th- yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just go quickly. I mean, uh, after. Um, the Supreme Court uh, ruled against Lula's habeas corpus rights. Habeas corpus rights means your right to stay out of prison while your appeals process is ongoing. Uh, he was ordered uh, to hand himself in on Friday by Judge Sergio Moro, who's been the lead uh, judge and prosecutor in this Lavo Jato corruption extravaganza uh, at 5 p.m. on uh, Friday. The talk was before it would take two weeks for him to get into prison. Uh, but instead hey, wait, of... What- what happened? Instead of handing himself into prison, he uh, went to Sao Bernardo, which is an industrial satellite city and the historic center of the Brazilian trade union movement where uh, Lula had his political start and hold himself up in the metal workers uh, offices there. And militants from across Brazil and Sao Paulo went there and formed a human blockade. Uh, and he refused to leave. And but this continued to the next day, where there was a mass commemorating his uh, recently deceased wife, who died a, a year ago to the day. And afterwards, he meant to turn himself in, but instead of turning himself in, his supporters wouldn't let him. It took a sort of three, four hours of uh, the leaders of Pete trying to explain to his militants there uh, that uh, he needed to turn himself in, otherwise he his appeal process would be compromised for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, it was so kind of... What would, have ha- what would have happened if he hadn't turned himself in? I, I don't... I mean, there was a moment, right? I mean, we were watching this, and on Friday when he goes, I'm not turning myself in, it's like, whoa, this might drastically radicalize the situation because if he's refusing uh, the judge's orders, you know, that, then that will be a serious confrontation. Would the military police come in and try to gra- take him out of there, you know, with, with a human blockade of leftist activists? What would happen? But then he kind of turned, turned around and goes, no, no, I'm going to hand myself in. I mean, the main effect of it was that I guess Lula won the sort of PR war against Judge Sergio Moro because the images that were seen were him being carried on the backs of his support, on the shoulders of his supporters um, to finally kind of hand himself in after having held the mass for his, you know, for his for his deceased wife and so on. So like, it obviously it, it only bolstered his image. I mean, and furthermore, I mean, there's sort of been this hysterical right wing celebration afterwards where, for instance, the, the owner of a brothel here had this sort of pantomime where he dressed up as Lula in prison and ripped the clothes of a woman to chance with adoring fascists. And then the police on the plane that flew Lula to Curitiba, where he's supposed to be in prison, were like, oh, let's uh, throw him out of the plane. Let's kill him. And uh, they didn't realize it was being recorded at the time. Yeah, th- these are these are the, uh, the the agents of the state and demure, um, upstanding, respectable bourgeois uh, who are anti-corruption and anti-workers' party in Good Brazil. Just to give you a picture. <laughs> And what yeah. did they, what did they say? They said, "Let's throw this shit out the out the airplane." Yeah, that's, that was it. Let's let's turn the shit. And then they, and then like someone comes on the radio. You can hear the recording. Where someone comes on the radio and goes, "You guys were this is all being recorded. You guys are gonna have to stop talking about this." Like Jesus Christ. I mean, the level of like stupidity that people can get away with here is, is, is cannot be underestimated. Um, so yeah, so, all, all, so all, all to be seen. What's that? No, so what happens next? I mean, so Brazilian politics again being so much more interesting than the British. Uh, what's what's going to be the the next next stage of this story? I don't I don't know, man. I mean, it. I you know I think Lula might end up being released um, on on one of his appeals. The the end game is that he's not going to be able to run in October's elections. But there's a lot more crazy to come uh, over the yeah, coming months. Yeah, he might so. transfer his support over to another candidate. Uh, there might be a, a significant crackdown on left wing activists, and there's also a chance not a 
you know, far chance, but uh, or a very good chance, but a reasonable chance that uh, Michelle Temer might be removed soon as well for uh, get his mates being involved in a drug trafficking scheme out of Santos. It's all it's all going on. It is. Um, but yeah, that, that's our little Brazil update. But we're gonna we'll we'll come back to that um, over the course of the next couple of podcasts because there's a lot more juicy stuff happening. Um, and so now we're gonna move on to Hungary. All right, so we're here to discuss Hungary, uh, and the uh, elections were held yesterday, so we've got the results, and we're very pleased to have Tamás Gerich here uh, join us to talk about this. He's a junior research fellow at the Institute of World Economics, uh, and he's doing his PhD at Corbinus University of Budapest, and he's in Budapest now uh, and joins us to talk about this. Um, so to get started, um, outside of Hungary, the, a lot of the commentary, especially from the from the center, basically uh, from within the EU, um, is uh, pretty condemnatory of certain anti-liberal, even anti-democratic tendencies within Hungary. Um, but you know, there was a sixty nine percent turnout, which is which is pretty high. Um, so I don't know what is your interpretation, at least, of of the idea that this was very somehow anti-democratic or that this election is compromised. It was definitely unfair, uh, unfair to an extent to to make it uh, make this argument that uh, it wasn't really democratic and transparent in in, in the full sense. Um, technically speaking, it was according to the current uh, rules, uh, electoral uh, regulation, and there were no major error in during during the election so technically speaking it was fine and it was it was democratic but in general it was uh, unfair and 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 mostly if you look at uh, the media the way uh, uh, this whole election was thematized and the way uh, various uh, representatives of, of different social groups had access to uh, communicate with their um, with their supporter base, it, it, it was very imbalanced and un, un, unfair. So, but this is just just the tip of the iceberg. So, when we talk about the uh, illiberal state in Hungary, as 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 it calls itself, so as the government has dubbed it, of course we'll see uh, the rising tendency of some form of uh, authoritarian system, or as we call it in Hungary, and that's again uh, ironically dubbed by senior government politicians, it's the the kind of a system of, of the central power. So there is a, a, a power concentrated uh, within the institutional setting of of of, of the country, uh, of the constitution, and uh, well, that's that's this kind of a core power is capable to 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 rule, in fact, overrule the game of of, of democracy. So definitely, I, I would say it's uh, it's 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 a highly problematic thing. I wouldn't uh, accept it as a fair game. And interestingly, prior to to the election, there were some debates among uh, young. Um, leftist or 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 whatever progressive uh, intellectuals whether uh, the best strategy is to participate in this or to boycott this mm. because once you participate you legitimize which seems to be the consequence of of this high uh, 
well, uh, participation rate. Uh, and despite there is a high participation rate and, and, and uh, many people, many uh, oppositional uh, supporters were mobilized, still uh, the Fidesz could repeat its supermajority. So now again, I expect these debates to come back whether uh, it makes a strategic sense to participate in a game where the rules are designed in a way that you just simply cannot really win, or uh, you'll you'll really have to pay a very high high price, and probably should talk about a bit about this price. So you have to pay a very high price if you want to be a potential challenger to the system. So if 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 that's the case, and that's very much seems to be the case, and I think this is uh, this is the real dis- disillusionment today in Hungary that more and more people realize that. Um, this game is not winnable. Um, so then we have to we have to think about alternatives. Boy, how, how, how you how you want to make a change if if these rules don't really allow you to to articulate uh, oppositional views? Okay, so I mean, before we get a little bit deeper into this, um, I think Ben had a question. Well, I think this follows on uh, from the previous comments. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about the state of the opposition parties in. Um, Hungary, just uh, as a, some background, uh, the, the centrist socialist party came third with 12%. Jobbik, which is yep. the sort of populist far-right party, came uh, second with 20%. And the Greens, yes. who I don't know anything about there, came fourth with 7%. Uh, I don't think any of these parties are left-wing. Uh, what is the current state of the left in Hungary? Yeah, that's a very good question. So... Um... I would uh, start with the Greens. So they have a bit of um, anti-capitalist rhetoric, and um, in partly their ideology is, is, I would say, closest to to the left. But they are not really a left party. They they define themselves as a as as a as a as a third power, uh, distinguishing themselves from from leftist, central leftist and, and, and conservative parties. And uh, even uh, in fact, they have they have many conservative supporters and uh, they have like farmers su- supporting them. So it's they don't really have a very clear ideology on that, but uh, but they still like they, they are uh, anti-capitalist as, as they express it. Rest of the parties on the opposition side are indeed uh, well. Uh, they have ideological mixes, so um, none of them left in 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 in, it, in the true sense of the word. So they are uh, social democratic leaning uh, the best, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So what happens in Hungary is that the whole political landscape itself is is shifting very much to to the right to 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 the extreme right, and this affects these parties on the so-called left as well. So some of their candidates and and some elements in their campaign, even on 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 the question of of the southern fans raised by uh, Viktor Orban, or even uh, on 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 the question of migration, or even on on question of of the poverty of the Roma population, they leaned to quite extreme rightish rhetoric as well in, in in some instances which was which was a which was a shocking surprise uh, so, and as you as, as you 
Yep. Sorry, I mean, I just wanted to, to push you a little bit further to try to paint a picture of where the, the main dividing line. So, I mean, what you've got is a situation where Fidesz is the clearly dominant party and you've got an op- the, the kind of largest opposition party is Jobbik. Is that Jobbik. pronounced that correct? Yep. Yeah, Jobbik. Um, with, and they scored 20%. Um, as far as I understand it, Fidesz's uh, kind of economic policies have been very deliberately anti-social um, as well as anti-liberal in ways that you've just already described. But I mean, it seems to be a sort of a nationalist uh, neoliberalism, um, if, I'm, if I'm not wrong there. What is Jobbik's uh, difference from, from Fidesz? Do they present any significant difference um, in terms of their economic policies? I mean, say, for instance, like uh, the Front National in France has positioned itself as a sort of defender of the welfare state in recent years to pick up sort of a working class vote. So there's something similar going on there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think uh, the main difference uh, is, 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 is in the rhetoric and in the ideology. So the question was, of course, the relationship between the Jobbik and Fidesz, and, and I would say kind of a real competition seemed to arise between the two, and, and Fidesz uh, has been um, quite offended, in fact, in some instances, scared of, of Jobbik and Jobbik's rhetoric, so they tried to steal uh, their rhetoric, and it was quite successful. So there was a competition on, on the level of the rhetoric. Uh, what was at stake, though, beyond the rhetoric, was that the, su- the supermajority of the Fidesz is based on a very complex and wide sort of a class alliance uh, fabricated through political, ideological, all kinds of means. We can really use Gramsci's uh, concept of hegemony here, how, how it's, it's really working in Hungary. So what happened that Fidesz is not an outspoken like anti-social party in a sense. They they are really good in uh, favoring certain social groups against the others and their social policy was very um, much favoring uh, upper upper middle class people. Uh, whereas uh, lower middle classes uh, were less beneficial uh, to, to, to Fidesz policies. So we see, it's, it's I, I suppose, a global tendency, but we see a, a, a very fast and very spectacular, spectacular polarization of, of the middle classes and the middle-lower uh, segment of, of this group uh, cannot easily be, uh, uh, you know, kept in this alliance. So Fidesz needs harsh rhetorics to keep this group, this this very complex and contradictory group together, whereas Jobbik tried to mobilize these people by demonstrating that the Fidesz, the rhetoric of the Fidesz is is not uh, is not legitimate, it's it's uh, it's a fake sort of legitimacy. The real representatives, the real uh, if you like, carrier of these ideas are themselves. So they try to, you know, really target these these uh, middle class, these lower middle class people who are, who are less beneficial of of these social policies. So that was the kind of a contradictions uh, amongst those classes upon which, uh, if you like, really this hegemony of of the Fidesz political alliance was based. And then we had a very competing situation between the two. As I said, these were largely uh, rhetorical competition uh, and what happened at the end was that Fidesz uh, won these 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 rhetorical competitions it could manage to uh, keep uh, these groups and it could manage to 
reunify its alliance by using more and more radical rhetoric. So we saw the rhetoric of Fidesz shifting towards uh, the towards the far right, whereas Yobi could not really capitalize on on far right rhetoric. So what happened approximately uh, uh, one and a half two years ago that uh, Yobi decided to to change strategy and to move out from the far right towards those central uh, central segments even even uh, to to cosmopolitan city people mm-hmm. and try to mobilize them because uh, because Fidesz could obviously lose out uh, on on uh, on that segment so in, in in the central especially if if we can recall this incident with the Central European University again approximately a year ago that was a real huge shock i would suppose to the whole of the intelligence in Hungary including Fidesz sympathizers and conservative uh, intellectuals so Fidesz did lose many um, in the center just, just in, to interrupt in you it, it might be worth for for the sake of our listeners to to kind of recap on what actually happened there because it was quite an important event yeah yes exactly and it's it's not over yet so we still read these news day by day what happened was that they made an amendment to 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 the to the educational law, which required certain universities whose uh, affiliation uh, who, who is is not in Hungary to 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 register up uh, in Hungary, uh, and that uh, seemed to be like again a very unfair process. How they could do this registration, or or whether it was possible to do this registration with very strict deadlines and with very bureaucratic processes. And uh, it was very obvious from the beginning that this would be prone to a sort of political decision who will be uh, given the permission to be accredited, if you like, in in Hungary. So it really targeted the Central European University, which is uh, originally a a US-based, US-registered university, although it does have a small affiliation, which is a separate institution, and that's registered in Hungary. But... mm, most of the students and most of the departments are under not this Hungarian affiliation, but but the the, the American one. And uh, so what happened was like a very long political process and debates whether CU, CU will will get this permission and whether those students and those departments which are registered in the U.S. whether they can stay in Hungary or not. And as I said, we, we we don't really have a result on this, so it was like an um, unfinished uh, <laughs> process. Uh, but what happened was that uh, really large demonstrations, probably the largest demonstrations in the last two years, started in uh, support of the CEU to to defend to to stand by CEU and as I said all kinds of people usually um, intellectual educated people but from both the right and and the left went out uh, to the streets and uh, it some it, it somehow uh, helped so in the political process so Fidesz so the Fidesz government. Um, uh, at the end, uh, did not introduce those very harsh uh, legislation. They they softened somewhat, but we could see that they did not want to put an end on this process. They did not want to solve this process. They wanted to use it for for basically for for campaign reasons. Mm. 
So, I mean, this is just one example, a very notable one, which was widely reported, but just one example of Orban's very liberal rule. Um, I mean, the, and the other thing which is really widely discussed, and we, we should probably bring it in here, is the question of migration. Um, how much yeah. hostility actually is there um, to migration in Hungary? Um, how, much of a, how much of a popular base does this have? Is, or is this just kind of rhetoric um, from, from Orban and from Jobbik as well? Well, it's, uh, it was originally a rhetoric, but it, it seems to be a successful rhetoric. So um, what people have concluded so far after yesterday's election was that exactly this was the most effective uh, campaign rhetoric that could mobilize a lot of people. And that's, that's still a surprise. So if you look at hard social facts, uh, this country is not... Uh, exposed to migration in a way it's been portrayed by by government agencies in the media. In fact, we are more exposed of uh, immigration, so the outflow of of people, which was again a very interesting thing in this election because it was probably the first time that hundreds of thousands of people from Hungary voted cast their vote outside of Hungary, and they are. Yeah, guest workers in neighborhood countries or in, in Western Europe. So going back to the question, the way this country is exposed to migration is quite the contrary to what's being portrayed in the media. Uh, but it's, it's, it's successful. And that's a big question why it is successful. And, it, and, and, and it's a very unfortunate thing that it's successful, not only in terms of mobilizing people for election, but there is definitely a rising hostility towards uh, people who are either not born in Hungary or, or whom uh, others regard like uh, migrants or, or outsiders or whatever way they, they frame it. We have loads of stories of of uh, minor and major attacks or attempts to attack people, even people who are actually Hungarian citizens or born in Hungary, but for some, some weird reasons, uh, other people thought that they were migrants. And then so, so there are loads of scandals around it. I don't know all the stories and, and probably not all the details are interesting here, but there's definitely there's definitely a kind of a hostility and a, a kind of a fear of 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 people coming in into Hungary, which is a very much um, exaggerated in a sense that we are not really a, a hosting country, rather a transitional country. So even people uh, entering Hungary, uh, refugees or migrants, they rather use Hungary as a transit country and they would want to go further on to, to, to Western Europe. Yes, um, I'm just gonna, uh, a lot of the foreign coverage is really focused on the character of Viktor Orban. Uh, can we really, can you give us a little bit of his, uh, his background and in particular can you focus uh, and sum up exactly what interest does he represent? Is there a particular faction of capital he's aligned to or a particular group within the power structure of uh, the Hungarian social formation? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, his personal bio is, 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 is very interesting. So he he was uh, one of these revolutionary youngsters in uh, the late 80s around the time of the regime change on the liberal side. So he used to be... Uh, 
uh, a very radically liberal person at the time. And nowadays we really recall it because what happened to him in the mid-90s uh, seemed to be a similar story to what Jobbik experimented uh, around this election, uh, namely that there was a, a, a major, a larger liberal party at the time, and they were the junior partners of those liberals. But of course, it was a very competitive situation, and they did not manage to to overgrow their their uh, senior partner. So whatever they did, whatever campaign they initiated, they were somehow imprisoned into this position of a very junior uh, uh, partner. So what happened that in the mid-90s, uh, the conservative coalition of the time collapsed, so there was a political vacuum on the on the right, and Orbán's um, well, uh, genie somehow uh, realized this potential to reprofile the party and to shift from 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 this liberal end of the spectrum to the to the very conservative, and that's where uh, today's Fidesz story started in in a way. And this is very similar to, to the story I, I, I was just describing about Jobbik when Jobbik uh, realized that they are not able to to overcome this position of, of, of a, if you like, a junior partner, although it never really was a partnership, it was much more competitive, and they felt very much imprisoned in this position, so they decided to, as we call it in Hungary, to gentrify, to, to go into the center, to moderate themselves, because there is a political vacuum there, there is much more space to go into that direction. Uh, it didn't work for them, at least not on this time. So ever since then, Orban, he's, 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 he's a manager. He does not represent particular capitalist interest groups. He's, uh, he's, he's doing the, the politics which uh, uh, populist uh, conservatives or populist right-wing parties uh, have always done in Hungary, in a sense, to try to support and try to build up a sort of a national bourgeoisie, as we might call them, which is initially almost like a, a non-existent group in Hungary, or at least throughout the 90s during the period of the transition, it was a very weakened and a very minor group of people. Most of the capitalists, if you like, and major business players were, were coming from the West. They were ally, allied to, to, to liberal and social democratic parties. Um, and of course, it was uh, the result of, of privatization. It was the result of the break, breakdown of the old system. So what happened in Hungary in the 90s through various shock therapy-like policies was that those uh, groups of owners who tried to convert their capital, political capital or, or, or any other kind of capital from state socialism into, into private property was a very minor group. So the national bourgeoisie was very weak. Mm -hmm. And of course, these, these moderate or, or not necessarily so moderate, but uh, nationalistic parties, even in the early 90s, mid-90s, tried to attack those... Um, Comprador capitals or, or or international capitalist fractions, if you like, who were embedded in 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 various industries uh, from the beginning, 
uh, and there and of course we, we have to look at the structure of the Hungarian economy to see what kind of industries are dominating this for example car industry or, or banking sector or these these large large uh, segments of the economy they they they, are, they they used to be like super dominated by by foreign owners so what happened was of course that helped Orban a lot was was the were the years of 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 the crisis and and Interestingly, Hungary is a little bit of an exception to many other countries in Europe because a deep uh, crisis, economic crisis, if you like, a very deep recession yeah. started much before the the, the, the the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. It started at around the time of 2006 for, for various reasons. And since 2006, there's been harsh austerities. There's been a, a crisis of, of the former liberal hegemony. And what happened in 2010, if you like, at the peak of, of, of the global crisis, which hit Hungary extremely bad. So it, it was a very, very deep crisis, probably because of because of because of the story before so like it's it, its immune system was already so much weakened so that's where or the, 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 the this new illiberal system could come in and overtake uh, the collapse or the decline of this former hegemony and start to build up its own project and 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 that's that's fairly true to say that still main pillars of this system is to try to promote and create a kind of a national bourgeoisie but we should we should really interpret it in a, in a kind of a semi-peripheral context mm-hmm. so th- these are not like companies in the rural market or it's not like entrepreneurs in, in the classical liberal sense, but they, these are a kind of a political oligarchy. They are like highly dependent on, on the state through redistribution or, or through taxation. So, so what the Orban state inserted at the beginning in the, in the very first years of its, its power after 2010 were exactly these policies to help these people. It's so, an interesting, I mean, so it's a very limited... I just yeah. wanted to say that you're, I mean, <laughs> you've kind of preempted my next three questions because mm-hmm. that was excellent. And that was exactly what I wanted to sort of come on to, because at least from my reading, and I, I'm not a hungry expert by any stretch of the imagination, but the 2008 crisis or that period, as you say, it started, it kind of predates even um, the 2008 crisis. It's a real dividing line for Hungary. So you have this period prior to that. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just kind of saying this as a sort of prompt to you, but the socialists in power in the 2000s were sort of, you know, supposedly center left, but were really neoliberals. And when the crisis hit, they paid the price for that, right? And that kind of was the major reason behind the bottom falling out of the liberal mainstream and leading to this confrontation, this kind of political competition that you have now, which seems to be played exclusively on the grounds of the right between Fides and Jobbik. But as you said, they, they kind of competing on the same ground. Um, yeah. Is that is that kind of a correct interpretation of of what has happened? Absolutely. And, yeah. And one, this is exactly the reason why it's kind of hard to call uh, the socialist uh, real left 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 wing party even today. So they are carrying this legacy of 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 neoliberal. Um, background and it, it goes back it goes very much back even to state socialism you know hungary was like during the goulash communist years in effect sort of the most liberal 
socialist state and these were exactly the same kind of uh, socialist MPs or their ancestries who were actually fabricating an already a kind of a neoliberal system in, in Hungary in, in the 80s. So they, they, they were in power, they inserted the neoliberal hegemony in the 90s through this privatization and, and other kind of policies. They're still like... Um, using these ideologies so, so i would say they're they're much closer to to the liberal ideas than to to leftist ideas in general of course uh there are some shifts in the ideological landscape generally towards the right but there is something we call like uh, popular leftism nowadays in hungary and due to the fact there there are such a deeply divided uh, social situation and there is such a rampant poverty even some segments of the liberals realized it as a potential to to you know use left-leaning rhetorics to to pretend a bit to be more like socially inclusive and open because they they can use it against the Fidesz because of course the Fidesz has this very much upper class exclusive way of 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 class uh class policies uh, so there is there is this as well but this is it makes a very confusing mix of, of ideologies on on the left side i would say it's, it's generally so so real leftist agendas are, are are unfortunately very much very much missing and there there are hardly any representatives very minor groups who would truthfully represent uh, not only lower middle class people but those uh, three million people, like a third of, of 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 this population, who are totally excluded from any kind of social benefit for for a very long time, and in living in 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 very extreme poverty, they have absolutely no voice. They weren't really represented in this election either. So much of these competitions, whether rhetorical or whether really between uh, social classes, it was focusing on 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 this polarization effect in the middle in in the middle class. So I mean th- that's I mean that's really striking I think something that I probably wasn't uh, aware of to, the, to such a degree um, the degree of poverty in Hungary now and that and the kind of role that Fidesz's policies have played in this um, because from my understanding you know there's things like sort of flat tax um, low deficit targeting like labor flexibilization cuts to unemployment benefits and to social spending and then I think uh, the cost of goods is quite high there's high VAT so it seems like a very uh, difficult situation for the majority of Hungarians exactly so it's a very dividing uh, uh, policy mix Fidesz has been using and uh, they are somehow very uh, smart, so to speak, on how to favor their, uh, those social groups upon which their power really rests. And these are very much uh, upper class people. So I wouldn't say they don't have a social vision. They have a very clear and a very decisive social vision. And they use all kinds of policies uh, from family allowances, from family allowances to, to, to labor regulation to favor this group against other and discriminating other groups, actually especially labor. So if we want to look at the Orban regime from labor's point of view, one thing I, I, I usually highlight that it's 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 extremely liberal. So on the one hand, we call it is an illiberal state, and this is definitely an authoritative system with no uh, tendency to, to a com- plural democracy. But on the other hand, it's uh, industrial labor 
policies are are very neoliberal. They've been loads of lots of tax credits to multinational companies. We have probably the most deregulated labor market in even in Central Eastern Europe, which itself is is, is a kind of a region where neoliberal policies have been. Um, activated for sometimes so orban in that sense is competing with 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 neighborhood countries and he wants to be the the best pupils of 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 uh actually international capital in that sense and if i have a few more minutes i, I have yeah. to clarify this because um i explained his story from the point of view of of a kind of an anti-comprador anti-international capital guy and pro-national capital guy but of course, it's it's a simplification. So Orban could uh, map this out in which segments of the economy and in which parts of of the society uh, this kind of a national bourgeoisie has a chance to to grow and to be fed by the state. And this is very limited. So this is not a world economy story. We are talking about some segments of the retail. We are talking about the media. So very much like the domestic. Uh, situation in domestic markets and in in um, in the domestic infrastructure like utilities and certain things. If we talk about those parts of the economy which are the large and dominating parts that you know like these uh, exporters and manufacturing and service sectors and and all the rest of it, he's 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 very friendly. He doesn't insert any of these harsh policies. He's he's the neoliberal guy. Mm. Uh, that's in and and if you look at the some comments from from German industrialists in Hungary uh, before the elections, they were like super supportive of, of surprisingly supportive of, of Orban because they, they 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 pretty much allied. So Orban is, unfortunately, kind of a smart guy in that sense. So he mm -hmm. knows how far to go in in this policy. He wouldn't really want to, uh, you know damage or 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 harm this kind of a relationship. To, to to large multinational firms. So, Again, it's not only a peripheral story, but it's it's a story of dependency. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, no, I mean, I just wanted to uh, kind of, if we could recap this, because if, so if my understanding is right then, that you've got the crisis of neoliberalism in 2008, which kind of does away with the Socialist Party's rule. Fidesz comes in, but maintains effective neoliberal policies, but within a sort of more authoritarian nationalist framework. Um, and yet it seems that the reason that the things that Orban's regime is most criticized for by maybe liberals in Hungary and certainly liberals abroad is the fact mm -hmm. that it doesn't go along enough with the EU, the IMF and international finance. So it seems to be that the kind of liberal... Uh, recipe for Hungary is to kind of double down on its neoliberalism, which seems to be a completely wrong-headed way about it. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. also um, um, on that that point, um, maybe uh, we could also just clarify a bit what is the relation between uh, Orban's government and the EU? Is there a... Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, from what I've seen, the, the EU doesn't seem to have any real problems with the way democracy is functioning officially in Hungary, so long as they're keeping to deficit targeting and playing by the rules. But at the same time, the sort of uh, very pro-EU liberal critique exists, and it doesn't have mm -hmm. any political content in my mind. Yes, I, 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 I agree with that. So... Um, despite this rhetoric, like anti-EU rhetoric, but 
he's he actually in this campaign Orban wasn't really so much anti-EUS he used to be in the previous years so his agenda softened somewhat towards not like against the EU but to reform the EU to make a new EU to make a new kind of uh, a, a group a new kind of a political alliance in, sounds in, like you and focus yeah, so we really know what he meant. So he's 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 seeking these alliances regionally and 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 with other 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 far right groups. So it was no surprise that he himself was labeled like Mr. Far Right. So he's trying to build up a new kind of uh, a, a, an alliance, a political alliance in the EU. And uh, strangely enough, it's been successful to 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 some degree. So we see that this. This whole political landscape is is changing in in the EU and 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 at least compared to four or five years ago, Orban was definitely like super isolated politically, and since then he's now a much stronger guy. He he he's not invited and he's not uh, friends of 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 see like major major uh, politicians or or or. Um, presidents of of large european countries but he he's, he's definitely he's definitely a threat and he's he's is definitely someone who can even intervene in 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 the political life of, of of other countries we we see that so he his rhetoric definitely a bit softened on this and and i, I agree with your analysis so he he's He's, he's he's part of the EU project in a sense. We have to we have to see what this EU project really is about. It's such an uneven uh, structure. It's such an uneven process of 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 neoliberalism, if you like. So what happens obviously at its peripheries? Again, I have to apply this this word this this terminology is that it 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 in 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 a crisis prone era it it doesn't produce the 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 same liberals as it produces in in, in core countries so obviously it's a it's a different sort of a context even for for neoliberalism it's a kind of an illiberal state within this neoliberal context but there is a strong uh, overlap and there's a strong inter- asymmetric interdependency uh, or it's no surprise that Orban is so uh, supportive to 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 German industrial interest and he does have that support in Germany especially in, in southern Germany where many of these companies and many of these industrialist f- uh, fractions are based and they are they're very close to Orban in, in all sense. And geographically, they can just come over and help him in in a campaign. And he's he's constantly invited to to their campaigns um, in in Munich, for example. Um, but all, also, these companies are are very very active in Hungary, and they are they're not they don't really care much about Orban's rhetoric. Obviously, they're capitalists. They mm-hmm. they don't really care as long as as long as their business is is captain safe and Orban is he's guaranteeing so Orban seems to be a more reliable guy to them than probably any other person in in, in the Hungarian political life that's fascinating uh, I, I mean I, I just think that really spells out um, something which is runs quite contrary to the dominant sort of media presentation of of Hungary um, as somehow um, you know, implacably opposed to the EU and as well to sort of German interests within the EU. The way you're putting it, it seems like very much the opposite, that actually Orban is kind of a fairly trusted guy there. 
that he, he he kind of runs his he runs the country in line with with kind of expectations from the EU um, the kind of illiberal aspects notwithstanding something like that so I would I would rather say that he he runs the country according to the expectations of 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 uh, serious interest groups in Germany and and that's another question whether it's it's a kind of a consensual thing in Germany or not it seems to be the case that even within Germany. Orban is somehow a dividing person, so there are many voices against him, mostly based on on these liberal notions. But of course, there are these these hard interests from I, I have to emphasize from industrial capital, and they they also dominating the German political landscape. But they definitely have a strong say over. Uh, politics in Germany, so they can't really do much with Orban. It's like uh, we can see German foreign policy. It's it's not very friendly to Orban, but they wouldn't they didn't use any of those really restrictive uh, punitive means that could somehow limit Orban. So only only in terms of gestures. For example, Merkel showed a little bit of uh, hostility towards him, but that that was all. It was mm. it was not more than that. And we have to add one more thing, which makes Orbán definitely, in a sense, uh, a, a, a European politician, or pro even pro Europe politician or pro EU guy, or at least we can say that he wouldn't really be interested in you know exiting the EU because much of uh, his power is based on on those investment funds, which he obviously redistributes among this political oligarchy, and these are EU monies. So Mm -hmm. he is highly, highly dependent on on German industrial investments on the one hand and EU transfers on the other. If these weren't there, at at uh, at his at his uh, hands, then this type of a system wouldn't su- survive, I would say. So it's it's an integral part of how these tri- things are distributed in the EU. Okay, well that's brilliant. I mean that's a that's a Great. fascinating picture, and I have to say again, you kind of ended up preempting like half my question. Yeah. So that's basically, just perfect. Once we got you on one question, you basically went through all the lines that we had before. <laughs> So that's great. That's fascinating. Uh, Thanks very much for for coming on. um, And uh, we'll talk to you again, hopefully soon. Yeah. Thank you for doing. Thank you. All right, that was uh, Tamás Gerich. Um, we're going to talk a little bit amongst ourselves now, kind of draw out some of the broader conclusions as we usually do after these interviews. Um, so Ben, first of all, you had some thoughts. Well, as we've sort of been in our sort of narrative chronology with uh, the podcast, we've been speaking of First, how the sort of Italian political crisis is a mirror of the future in the sense that you can't think of an alternative except these sort of competing forms of populism that actually have no political content on the right and the sort of permanent political stagnation. And Brazil, in which uh, you basically have this the centrist establishment in the desire to remove a very moderate left-wing project opening Pandora's box of evil to get them out and leading to this real right-wing reaction. I think Hungary also presents another alternative future scenario, not just for uh, countries within the EU, but in the world in general, in which you have a competing visions of right-wing populism sticking to neoliberalism, targeting specific demographics within the middle class against each other with any thought of more redistributive uh, society um, thrown down uh, as any sort of vision for the future instead of focusing on blaming immigrants, bringing up George Soros. This is a simulacrum of sort of uh, 
being counter-hegemonic to the sort of liberal project, but at the same time, it's, as we've seen from this episode, it's completely complicit in EU structures. The EU actively enables it through the way that the, it's integrated into the uh, economy of the EU. It's fostering by national bourgeoisie is in no way threatening to big mm. e- German capital, for instance. And I think we also have something in this as well, in that um, the EU as a project, it was its defenders, of which they are less and less, but they still maintain a sort of dominant position in many media outlets, uh, point to the EU as sort of the celebration of cosmopolitan, liberal and democratic values after the ashes of World War II still. You can see Yanis Varoufakis uh, in his attempt to create a new left EU party, which I think is going very nowhere. It's got a really bad name too. Um, cannot point to a single political victory that the EU has done. All the EU is clearly capable of doing is uh, basically using economic pressure against any political project which takes a more left-wing line and doesn't stick to uh, its rigid economic controls. It's clearly incapable of mastering any political pressure or even wanting to master any political pressure, let alone economic pressure, on any far-right project, no matter how institutionalized it is in government. And to the extent that it's clear from this interview, the Auburn project is going to be for a long time and is basically de facto creating a sort of one-party nominally democratic state a la Turkey. The EU is actively reproducing it. It doesn't have any ability to master any pressure. And despite how maybe some more liberal sides of the sort of Eurocrats might express some displeasure for its harsh anti-immigration rhetoric or its, uh, you know, blatant anti-Semitism in regards to George Soros, what can it really do? Yeah, I mean, it's worth... worth, um noting what Guy Verhofstadt said in response to the election. He said, by congratulating Orban without calling him on, without calling on him to respect European values, the EPP, P Centre-Right Grouping in the European Parliament, uh, legitimizes his vile campaign, his attack on the rule of law, and attempt to install authoritarianism. But, you know, this is all within the straitjacket of, of an EU which is um, undemocratic and increasingly anti-democratic. Um, so, you know, what, what, what's he talking about? Um, at the same time, you've got Le Pen um, commemorating the results, saying mass immigration promoted by the EU has been rejected once again. Of course, the EU is no friend of immigration, but this is where the kind of neoliberal center finds itself. They tie themselves in knots and actually um, are complicit with bringing out this kind of more authoritarian nationalist response to it. But, you know, as we learned and what Ben just said, um, in terms of the kind of management of the economy, things remain more or less as they were. I mean, I think the comparison to the Five Star Movement, which is uh, presented as this great threat to European uh, values and stability, uh, as we've seen from our episode in Italy, it's very clear Five Star Movement doesn't advocate leaving the EU or even any economic policies that would really break with the EU with the actual EU values, which is permanent sort of fiscal orthodoxy and and neoliberalism. So in that respect, it's like completely within the framework of existing European politics to accommodate uh, sort of authoritarian populist or uh, in terms of tech utopian vague populists as the five star uh, impulses and politics when they come to power because they don't actually challenge any core values of the EU. I think it's just interesting to hear Talk, talk about European values and what these obviously never spelled out actually mean and it is it's quite striking how the EU's managed to occupy that entire space of what European values are and and obviously define them in quite a narrow uh, and anti-left way but I think it's something which which kind of, which the the center's been completely complicit 
and we're doing and driven to a, to a large extent this idea that european europeanness is not examined critically really um really at all and it's just basically it's whatever the eu eu says not perhaps particularly an original point but one that i think is is quite undermade that whenever you see european values it's like well what what could this mean it's not another year and, and it's and it's a st- the eu but What's what's the history of this of of of, the, of Europe compared to the history of the EU? I mean, yeah. as you can see, if you can ask anybody from Africa what European values look like in practice, historically, it's not something to be celebrated. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and you know, the the, the kind of European values in in quotation marks is used as a stick with which to beat Hungary. And here, I'm in no way defending Orbán's policies, uh, much less Jobbik and so on. Uh-oh. But. But, but no, but <laughs> no, but the the you know trying to beat them and and um, Hungary into kind of being more liberal in quotation marks one means accepting EU diktat and that of the IMF and so on, but also um, is just furthers a kind of nationalist sentiment. So we know what how Orbán operates. He know we know that he's kind of resuscitated um, or you know sent a save neoliberalism by putting it into this sort of nationalist authoritarian shell um, and. You know, is able rhetorically his main strategy is point to external enemies. Look at the foreigners who are trying to um, who are trying to take us over. Jobbik go even further, trying to say it's the Jews and so on. So with that kind of you know very anti cosmopolitan, sometimes anti Jewish rhetoric, um, it just strengthens their own position. And it's funny because you see a similar thing with Russia today. We don't even have to repeat uh, the whole story of of kind of Russophobia nowadays, but that just strengthens Putin's position in Russia as well. So it's completely self defeating strategy, even from the point of view of neoliberal centrism, much less from any other more progressive alternative. Yeah, and as we've seen with the fate of uh, social democratic parties, and particularly recently the French Socialist Party and the German Social Democratic Party. Uh, they are incapable of expressing anything, but we just have to do what we were doing before. So it really just it becomes like a self self defeating prophecy in which they uh, more and more lamely cling to uh, neoliberalism and the sort of real uh, anti democratic spirit in their attempts to uh, basically defy their continued decline. But they just disappear very quickly, and if these parties don't take, say, a route like the Corbyn renewal uh, of the Labour Party, they're going to fade into irrelevance and we're going to end up where you have the a bunch of, uh, you know, DVD salesmen starting new parties against some sort of authoritarian nationalist force as the supposed called moderate centre to save European values. Yeah. Not That's... not a not a DVD salesman, but someone who will loan you DVDs. So it's even. It's <laughs> not going to give you the yeah, which is like you know the, one of the like if you think like if you think, it's a good metaphor because like DVDs are basically irrelevant now with streaming. Uh, but like at the time, someone thought this was like the height of advanced technology. Well, this but is it. Centrist technocracy is old tech. You know, it's out of yeah. date. Um, it's got an inbuilt obsolescence. Only, <laughs> that's true. Any any socialism can actually develop really future looking technology. And um, but to return to Ben's original point, yeah, I think that was was what came through quite strikingly in the interview, and I found really interesting. Is it's here, here are the alternative consequences that you see played out of of the weaknesses of of all these national lefts. And in in Hungary, this is. You know they're, they're they're not they're all bad options, but this one seems particularly bad. That without the left being so so um, discredited, or the centre left so discredited by the two thousand eight crisis and weakness of any socialist opposition, means that you just have these two different right populist views, and there's not that liberal 
establishment anchor um, that you see in, in the UK or the US or France or anything like that. So, I mean, it seems quite quite a downbeat analysis that we're we're giving here. But I think, it? yeah, no, it, it does. But I think and the reason why we decided we really needed to do an episode on Hungary beyond the fact that there was an election yesterday is the fact that it does seem to crystallize certain tendencies or is kind of an extreme sort of extrapolation of um, tendencies that we see um, across the EU, except that within the, you know, as Tamash rightly spelled out, within the EU core, within France, for example, you've still got a kind of uh, a still fairly substantial uh, liberal center, liberal mainstream, which is able to hold on against um, you know the challenge of Le Pen or for that matter the challenge from the left um, represented at the last election by Jean-Luc Mélenchon whereas in the EU periphery in a country like Hungary that just doesn't exist it hasn't led to the creation of that liberal center and so you get this um, quite extreme version of tendencies you see elsewhere where you have a face-off between an authoritarian uh, neoliberal right against uh, an even further right party who has to kind of try to find its space within that trying to come back to the center to try to um, you know to try to grab a little space but is unable to do so so you get this quite what seems like quite a sterile opposition between the far right and the authoritarian right and then you have this sort of green party championing sort of an anti-capitalist third way which also isn't a left force and that's like the closest to a counter hegemonic force you can find in mainstream politics and i just think like i mean maybe at some future we can talk about i think it might be worth exploring the fate of green parties across the world but for whatever original uh, mission they've had in most cases and hungary doesn't seem by far the worst compared to their uh, neighbors in Germany, that Green parties have faded into the system and actually been part of the problem rather than offering a political alternative. And especially in the case of Germany, where they supported all these horrible German uh, sort of NATO interventions, it's it's this is the sort of empty, sort of more ecological third way. And I think in Brazil, Marina Silva is just the most ridiculous example of it. Yeah, indeed. Um, one thing we didn't get to discuss. I... Sorry, go on. I, I, I'm just going to say, I'd listen to that that podcast on the fate of the Green parties. <laughs> so that, that will have coming up. One thing which we didn't get to discuss enough of um, was the question of migration, the, the, the consequences of the 2015 migration crisis, growing anti-immigration sentiment and xenophobia and so on, which we're going to have to do a dedicated episode on that uh, in the next coming months. But coming up next, we're staying within the EU and we're talking about Portugal, which uh, presents a picture which is really different from Hungary, where you've actually got the left in power, able to resist uh, Resist austerity, and which makes it really stand out from the rest of the the pigs um, of you know Spain, Italy, Greece, and Ireland um, as a real case to to be studied. So we're back with that next time. Uh, but until then, tell your friends about the podcast, subscribe, uh, share it around, tell anyone who might be interested because Alpha Bunga Bunga is the place to come for your global politics insight at the end of the end of history. Catch you later. Bye bye. <laughs>